Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Senator Nina Turner, the former Ohio senator and Democratic nominee for Ohio Secretary of State, who also served as co-chair of Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. I spoke to Senator Turner at the Labour Party conference in Brighton about organising within the Democratic Party, the future of the US left under Biden, and what lessons we can all learn from the defeats of the past few years, as well as how to make sure we don't lose hope. Thanks so much to all our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr Cornell West, support us at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Senator Nina Turner talking about her journey into politics. So thank you so much, Senator Nina Turner, for joining me today on this episode of A World to Win. How are you? How are you finding Labour Conference? I am wonderful, Grace, and it is a pleasure to be here with you all in Brighton. (laughs) It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, looking at the seaside right now. (laughs) It's beautiful. So talk to us a bit about your journey into politics. How did you become a socialist and what does that mean to you? Well, I don't describe myself as a socialist. I am a hell-raising humanitarian. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, um, I definitely believe in the uplift of humanity. I believe that uh, every human being deserves a certain standard of life and that there is a level by which we should never go below. And when I say especially, I don't mean especially as in industrialized nations have more right to a certain standard of life. But I want to say especially if you are in an industrialized nation where this your nation can afford to ensure that people have health care, mm-hmm. have clean air, clean water, clean food. There are no excuses for that not to be the norm. Mm-hmm. Also, I also believe that industrialized nations have an obligation to poorer nations in this world because we are all interconnected. And so in that way, I'm always fighting for the marginalized. I I get, I am a fighter. I'm on Mm. a fighter's journey. I definitely get that vibe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And what do those politics mean in your hometown of Cleveland, Ohio? Because you've spoken before about how this is one of the poorest counties in the U.S. It is. I mean, for the very people who need government to work, so many of them are in survival mode. So they don't have what I would consider the luxury to be as engaged and involved. And it's 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 sad in a way because the very people who need leaders like me are not necessarily as engaged in politics as the people who are more well off mm-hmm. socially and economically who can just have a cavalier attitude about whoever is elected. It is important, especially in this day and time, to engage people where they are and to motivate them. People are disillusioned. I've heard a lot of that here. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been here in my many discussions with so many beautiful people. And to be here with, you know, CWU and what they're fighting for to nationalize the Royal Mail, Mm -hmm. which we have nationalized uh, um, postal service in the United States of America. But what I'm really finding is the ties that bind us, whether we're on this side of the pond or the other side, 
is a sense of human dignity, that everybody deserves dignity in their lives. And what that entails is clean air, clean food, clean water, to be able to work a job where you have a living wage. So in terms of the people in my city where I was born and raised, the needs are really great, but the burdens are great too. Mm. And people can become so overwhelmed that they're just not participating. Our voter turnout, uh, especially in the race I just recently, as you know, mm-hmm. ran for Congress in the 11th Congressional District and the voter turnout in my city. The district is bigger than the city of Cleveland, but just by way of example, it's just about 15%. We just had a mayor's primary in my city a couple of weeks ago, and the voter turnout was about 15%. Mm. So we're about to give an enormous amount of power to somebody Mm. for the next four years. And the overwhelming majority of eligible voters are not even bothering to vote. To me, that is the greatest threat uh, to a representative democracy. And what did you learn from that race uh, in terms of kind of organizing, campaigning? What lessons are you going to take away from that? Grace, I learned that the neoliberals in the United States of America, and you all have your own version Mm -hmm. here, will stop at nothing to try to thwart the vision and the mission of progressives like myself, like Senator Bernie Sanders, like Congresswoman Cori Bush or Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez or Congresswoman Jayapal or Congressman Ro Khanna. I mean, I could go on and on. They will stop at nothing to thwart our agenda. And what is our, our agenda is simply to try to use public policy to change the material conditions of people who live in the United States of America. I do believe some of them will kill their own mama to stop us. And that is real. The, the way they came in um, against me, there were 13 people in my race. And there was an anybody but Nina campaign launched from the beginning. Mm. There were some people who were standing against me who made it very clear that they were against me, not only because of what I was standing for, but because I joined ranks with Senator Bernard Sanders. So my message to the progressive movement, both here and also over there, is that although our ideas are represent a universal good, that we can't get so caught up in the ideas that we're fighting for that we are not ready to throw down Mm -hmm. in the same way that the other side is willing to throw down to stop us. Secondly, you know, for us as a campaign, there was a lot of dark, what we call in the United States, dark money that came in, unaccounted for money. Meaning, Grace, if you had a candidate that you were supporting, you could give an unlimited amount of money and you didn't have to be revealed who you are in support of that candidate. A lot of that happened against me in support of my number one uh, competition. And uh, dark money is, is very dangerous. And that is a fight that we're fighting in the mm-hmm. United States of America. The Supreme Court uh, ruled that, that corporations are people, yeah. that they have a right. That money is speech. And that ruling has definitely upset even more the political apparatus in the United States of America. And so really what it says out in the open, I guess the beautiful thing about a bad situation is that the Supreme Court has confirmed what we already knew, that it is legal to bribe politicians in the United States of America. And if you have more money, your life matters more. That's really what that is. So fighting to change that too, because working class people like me We'll never necessarily have a fighting chance if we have to bump up against that kind of uh, greed and lack of integrity within a system. 
One thing I really wanted to ask you, especially after listening to your speech at the Tribune Rally last night, that amazing speech that had everyone so excited, um, was, so we had Cornell West on the show not that long ago, um, Brother West, and he was talking about the really deep links between um, his politics and his Christianity. And, you know, I'm the same, I identify as a Christian socialist, and yeah. I was really inspired to see you bringing in those themes and that message into your talk. So I'm wondering what role your faith plays. And you in said that to me, too. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Cornel West and I are very close, and we both hail from the Black uh, liberation tradition mm. within Christianity. And that liberation tradition uh, reminds me very much of, of, of a scripture when uh, Jesus was being challenged by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the people with the big titles. Uh, you know, what is the greatest commandment? You know, and they were trying to trip him up. And he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all their heart, soul, mind, spirit. I might be adding a little more to what <laughs> Jesus said, spicing it up a little bit. And then he said, the second is to love thy neighbor as thyself. <laughs> that is very much rooted in the black liberation tradition because of the struggle of those, uh, you know, Af American descendants of slaves. And I feel like the black community whether we call ourselves this in whole or not, our life experience and that of our ancestors is one of liberation. You don't get no more progressive than trying to fight for your very freedom and liberation. And that all other struggles draw strength from the struggles of African Americans and our, you know, our ancestors fighting for that. So very much, and you know, in politics, on the left in America, it's not necessarily proper to talk about religion in the open. But meanwhile, on the Republican side, they use religion as a blunt force object. And those evangelicals, they will sit across from world leaders and, and you know, leaders in America and let them know you do what I say do or else. But on the left, it's kind of frowned upon. And, and that's something I think uh, Dr. West and I agree on that we cannot allow the other side to take Jesus or to take God or to take spirituality and use it in a way that suppresses and oppresses people. That on the left, we need more people like him and, and I who are willing to say, what would Jesus do? What the hell would Jesus do? Well, the Jesus I serve would believe in Medicare for all. Mm. You know, the Jesus I serve would believe that working people deserve a living wage and clean air, clean water, clean food. The Jesus I serve would say we must reform a criminal justice system that is rotten to the core, that sees black people especially, and then other people of color, and then poor people from all walks of life as somehow more criminal or not as deserving of real justice. What would Jesus do? He would say, we got to do something about environmental chaos. What would Jesus do? He wouldn't allow 14,000 Haitian immigrants to be in squalor and then book them back on a plane faster than you book anybody else. What would Jesus do? He would say that women deserve their whole damn dollar. Now that's the Jesus I serve. I don't know about what they serve. In. And, 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 you know, that resonates with people. Dr. West and I are very good at what we do, our oratory, and people really gravitate mm -hmm. to us. I've had people who are atheists or agnostic, and they, they would always say, oh, my God, Senator, if you started a church, I would come. I've even had some of my Jewish sisters and brothers say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm of the Jewish faith, but baby, if you opened a church, you know, I'll be right there with you. So I, I, I just think that it, it's something about the African-American church tradition 
that is unique. It, it is it is an experience like no other. Mm-hmm. It really is. And so it informs what I do. And um, it's a radical type of love. When I come over to Ohio, I'm going to get you to show me around one of your churches. I would it sounds love amazing. It. Oh, yeah. You must come, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> you would love it. So what's it been like for you trying to build support for progressive policies within the Democratic Party? Very hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come at us. I mean, we are. But however, because I, I want the listeners on this journey with us to know that all is not lost. We, we've made enormous progress since Senator Bernie Sanders declared his candidacy in 2015. The progressive movement is very young. I call it the 21st century version of that movement that was awakened by his run. And there are leaders both elected and also leaders who are grassroots who are taking this. And we're actually moving the Biden administration further left than I think it would be, but for us putting up a fight. So it is worth the fight. Even if you don't get all of what you want, you got to go far. You got to make the demand. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't, you know, some people negotiate down before they make, no, make the demand. You want Medicare for all? Say you want Medicare for all, because then by the time you get to negotiations, it might not necessarily be exactly that, but you'd be closer to, to uh, where you ultimately want to get. I'm very proud of this movement. We have to become more agile, though, and we got to become, um, you know, I, I was fortunate, you know, Kara's here with me, and then she's on my comms team, and I want to shout out Angelo, who's not here right now, but she and I were having uh, dinner with a donor who is more on the corporate side, but he likes me, he likes Kara, and even though he might not 100% believe what we believe, he understands the need for it, you know. And he said these words. He said the Democrats need more gangsters. <laughs> and what he meant by that, when you compare the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, even right now, Mitch McConnell at this very moment, every Republican voted against extending the debt ceiling. Basically said the hell with America because of the Democrat-Republican mm. struggle. Oh, we're just going to let America default. Democrats would never do that. No. <laughs> so in that sense, and there are many other examples I can give, really what he meant by that is we need people who have more heart mm. to go all the way for what they believe and to stand up for people who don't have. And the Democratic Party as a whole just does not have that gene. As a matter of fact, the corporatists control both parties, mm. actually. But the progressive wing, I mean, we're doing everything that we can to make transformation and in, in ways we are winning. I mean, we might not win every battle. Nobody's going to win every battle. But our goal is ultimately to win. I hate to use these war analogies, but to win the war or to win what is just right and good. And that's very similar to uh, what is happening uh, in the in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Are you optimistic about building the ranks of progressive politicians in Congress and throughout state and local politics? In very the much years? so. Good. I am. I, I see it. Um, there are many organizations that have formed since Senator Sanders' run in 2016. He really inspired new organizations. He put a fire under organizations that might be a little uh, more seasoned. And that is a beautiful thing because the more organizations that we create on the progressive side, the more it gives us strength to be able to back progressive candidates and give them the cover and the money, the time, talent, and treasure that they need to be able to run the race and then to be able to win these races. So I am very, I'm inspired by the younger generation, the millennials, and also the Z's who see the world as it could be. 
You know, that's what we're fighting for. Mm. Not, you know, what is true today doesn't have to be true tomorrow. But if we want a better tomorrow, we got to fight for it today. And that is one of the reasons why both my campaign and also Senator Sanders' campaign, I would say most progressive campaigns attract a lot of young people. Now, what we need young people to do over here, and it's my understanding by meeting with the, the leaders of the, of, the, of the young portion of the Labor Party, is we need young people to get more engaged and to stay engaged, not to get discouraged and walk away. I mean, you can get discouraged, but just don't walk away. Mm. You know, it's a very human emotion to say to hell with this i'm leaving but we need more people to stick with it so yes absolutely i'm optimistic by the meeting i had here yesterday uh, with the young coalition of the labor party and i'm also very optimistic by what i see uh, young people doing in america you have done a lot of work speaking of kind of you know needing to keep people engaged um you've done a lot of work with kind of alternative media outlets you've just uh been kind of brought into the team at the Young Turks, which is yes. really exciting. I want to know how important you think it is to build a progressive media outside of the mainstream and how we can think about trying to do that well. Yeah, it's very important. I mean, your magazine, you know, the Trivium, for example, mm -hmm. that's exactly what you're doing. We have many newspapers. Jacobin is one. We have Intercept. We have a whole host word blessed like that. And then we have podcast folks and other types of journalists who, because of the advent of social media, we are able to get a stronger foothold into the media arena. It is vitally important because mainstream media tends to try to brainwash people. It's the same message every day. It's very few people own media outlets in the United States of America. I think it's about six. You all don't hold me to that number, but it's less than 10 mm. where they own the whole thing. Think about that. Yeah. And the same thing with newspapers. There was a time when black newspapers were burgeoning. That is not the case. And print media overall is not doing as well as it once was. But for black press, which think about this, black press was the way that the black community got alternative information. Mm. Right? You got the mainstream press that that undersells, underestimates, does not tell the whole truth about the black struggle. And then you have black newspapers that in the community, it bonded people together and they could find out what was really going on. Lynchings, for example, and all those other kinds of things, what's happening in the community. So I'm using that to inform the fact that it is vitally important to have independent sources of media and also these independent sources are free mm. because the people that fund them are everyday people like us and so it gives them a type of freedom to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth they don't have to answer to the corporate sponsors mm. in the same way mainstream media so i'm very excited about being with tyt uh, right now and being able to be uh, most of my whole self in the process <laughs> Our movement, I think it's fair to say, has suffered some defeats recently on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm wondering how being here at Labour Conference has made you feel about the future of the left, of progressives in the UK, in the US, around the world. I am both... I'm concerned, mm -hmm. but I also hold on to that hope. There's a lot of work to do, and that's on the concern side. Um, seeing how much we do have in common, sometimes you kind of forget that because you're in your own little bubble. But there's nothing that I heard here at the labor conference that is not very similar. And in some cases, exactly the same. 
with the struggle of the left, the progressive left mm. in the United States of America. And I believe that this, you know, having me here is the beginning. If we nurture it and we don't say, okay, I'm going back to America. We'll see you next year. If we are able to nurture relationship mm. takes work and have the type of solidarity, global solidarity. So while each one of us are fighting for a type of justice in our homeland, charity does start at home. And then there are other issues that we bind together. Climate chaos is one of those. Taming COVID is another. Where we don't just sit back and wait for people with fancy titles to do what many of them don't have the damn courage to do, that we the people do it. So if we can find those global issues that keep us together, I definitely believe that we will shake and shape this world. So I am both concerned because of the magnitude of the fight and the struggle is heavy and we got to get more people in tune but I'm also very hopeful about the possibilities. So I want to talk a little bit about policy now because um, you have I think run on quite an exciting policy agenda and I just want to think about how we really build support for some of those measures as we um, go into the next few years and into the kind of post-pandemic world. Sure. So we've seen some fairly radical measures from Biden on climate breakdown but he's also given the go-ahead for the big oil companies to do some big exploration of the Gulf of Mexico, subsidizing, them subsidizing big oil. Mm-hmm. How can we pressure this administration to stop cozying up to big oil? It is my sincere hope, but we can't just live on hope. we got to put some sweat equity behind that hope that we do get people on the inside of big oil who come to the fore to say we are destroying the planet. And we are destroying lives for nothing but unfettered greed. On the other end of that, we need the activists and we need to help to elect more people because it is important for the progressive left, whether they're here or over there, no matter where they are in the world, to understand that we got to keep the pressure up. We cannot uh, relent, especially of something of this magnitude. A lot of these people really don't give a damn. They don't. You know, Senator Sanders uh, spoke to a group virtually. Uh, here in Brighton. I, I don't quite remember the name of the organization, but he talked about the religion of greed. And that is really what is trampling on all of our security and advancements in in life is the religion of greed. And the greed is such that they don't care if they destroy the planet, as the senator said, to get one more dollar. Uh, we are going to have to put the pressure on these people. We got to make them uncomfortable. They are not uncomfortable enough yet. And this is going to be hard. This is mammoth, mm-hmm. no doubt. But it's certainly worth it because we got to preserve Mother Earth for ourselves and also for future generations. This is something on the climate chaos front, we can't relent. So organizations like Sunrise over in the United States of America, you got a bunch of young people doing the daggone thing, uh, gives me hope. You have some other organizations like the Sierra Club, you know, some organizations yeah, yeah, yeah. are a little more seasoned. Mm-hmm standing up and we also have to help people to connect the dots a lot of times you know as i was saying grace so many people are in survival mode they're just trying to make enough money to pay their rent or their mortgage or to get petrol as you guys say over here (laughs) um you know to put food on the table it's really really hard and to connect the dots what why should uh, big mama as we would call her in african-american community care about climate chaos we got to help people see that the, when the dominoes fall, they fall for all. That, for example, asthma, the rate of asthma in the black community is higher than it is in any other community. Then why is that? Well, environmental racism. 
well, how does that connect to me in my life? It connects to the fact that the healthcare is inadequate. It impacts the the racial dynamics that black people and then by extension, poor people tend to live in areas where mm. the air quality is not as good. And so we got to drill some of these things down to the basics. Why should Miss Johnson or Mr. Jones or Big Mama care about the issues that we're fighting for? What is in it for them? The U.S. is currently in the midst of a big evictions crisis. Yes. Lots of people have already been evicted from their homes. Many other are at risk of being evicted. How do we organize renters to push back against this? And what housing policies do we need to build a kind of just housing system? Yeah, you know, in this moment and just housing, you're absolutely right. I definitely got to shout out my dear sister. She calls me Big Sis, and that's Congresswoman Cori Bush. Because mm. Congresswoman Cori Bush actually slept out. When you talk about what can activists do, I mean, here's a woman who at one time was unhoused. She slept in a car with her babies. Mm. So she knows from a lived experience. And that's another thing we need, Chris. We need more people elected to office who have a lived experience. If you prim it proper and you ain't never went through anything in your life, I don't want you there. Mm. I want somebody that got a story to tell. Mm. And this is important because I remember getting a call from the congresswoman and we are very close. And she said, no, she calls me S&T. She said, S&T? <laughs> I cannot come. She was going to come to campaign with me. She endorsed me. She said, I can't come because everybody, Democrat and Republican, have gone on vacation and the eviction moratorium is about to expire. And I can't come. I'm going to sleep out until people move. And it is because of her action. See, the action of one can matter because one can attract another one and another one and another one and another one. So that's why I don't want this movement to get discouraged. So she slept out. And that shamed, especially the Democrats. So she shamed the members of Congress on the Democratic side, because these damn Republicans can't be shamed. And she also shamed the administration. And they moved on it, only to have the damn Supreme Court reverse it. But the point is, she took an action and she made people move. And we need to build affordable homes. I think affordable housing should be a, a, a right. It should be just a natural right for people to be able to have somewhere to live. If a global pandemic doesn't build support in the U.S. and build action in the U.S. on Medicare for all, what will? Grace, <laughs> you're messing with me now. <laughs> exactly. I ask myself that all the time. It really is immoral what is happening in the United States of America. But again, the powers that be mean in money. Going back to something I said earlier, it is legal to bribe politicians in the United States of America. And we got a lot of bribe politicians. Who is elected does matter. And that's why the progressive left has to continue to fight to get people like Congresswoman Cori Bush elected. Yeah. You know, people like me and others elected because we won't answer to those big money interests. And we could continue to push for universal health care. We need inside and outside game. I think any great movement needs people on the inside and the outside. But your question is very, very important. If this doesn't move, folks, what else will and can? More people have died now in the United States from this pandemic than in 1918 during the you know, the Spanish yeah. flu. We were up there. So you're right. If this doesn't move, millions of people unemployed or underemployed doesn't move you. How heartless can you be? But you know who they're answering to? They're answering to their owner during it. They're owner donors, and that's big pharma and big medicine. They don't want to see universal health care in the United States of America because it's all about the religion of greed. They don't care if you die, as long as they can make another dollar, to quote the great Senator Bernard Sanders. 
Where next for the struggle for black lives and against white supremacy? You know, in the South Africa system of apartheid, and we had our own system of apartheid in the United States of America, one of the things that they did do, they had truth and reconciliation. Mm. In the United States of America, we got folks debating whether or not critical race theory should be taught, you know, whether or not we should teach the truth about America's history, both the good, the bad and the ugly. We believe in the cover up in the United States of America. So to me, the first step is truth and reconciliation. you got to admit that you got a problem before you can try to solve it. And uh, in the halls of academia and also in the halls of, of Congress and, and power, we have to, again, initiate policies that force the change that is needed to address anti-blackness. I always start with that. And then racism in all of its forms must be dealt with. It was through public policies that African-Americans have been discriminated against, you know, from redlining to um, not being able to have same access to the GI Bill to freeway systems that uh, cut through poor black neighborhoods that created uh, suburban communities by and large was an escape of more affluent people to the suburbs to get away from those people to a medical system that is racist in nature. Even during this pandemic, Grace, black people are dying at higher rates and are hospitalized at higher rates. We're talking about systemic needs. So systemic needs require the institution that has the biggest and greatest stick and that is government, and then of the levels of government, that is the federal government. But first, we got to admit that we got a problem. It wasn't too long ago uh, where you, I think it was at the State of the Union, and some question, we had uh, one of the senators on the Republican side, Tim Scott, black man, get up there and say that there's no racism in America. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, Jesus, really? No racism in America. I'm like, where is this brother? Is he from Mars? <laughs> no racism in America. And then the next day you had Democratic leaders agreeing with them. That is a problem. We got to admit that not only is there racism in America, there's anti-blackness in America. And we got the receipts to prove it. And we don't have to go all the way back to chattel slavery. Mm. Black folks make less money. They uh, you know, depending on their name, if they got an ethnic name, their resume goes in file 13. In August, the unemployment rate of black folks went up. Black mothers die at higher rates. Black babies die at higher rates. More black men are in prison. I'm not talking about individual prejudice. I'm talking about systems. In order to deal with white supremacy, we got to be able to admit that we got a systemic problem. What happened to our Haitian sisters and brothers? That is an example of systemic racism. Black immigrants are uh, deported at higher rates. They are incarcerated at higher rates. And even under the Biden administration, they continued a rule that was created by President Donald J. Trump and started shipping out Haitian Put them on a plane at higher rates. Like, right, like we got to get them out. That is another example of it. So before I deal with the white men and women with the tiki torches marching down the street, 
We got to deal with our own government where it's embedded. I hold out hope, but then I'm mad as hell. You can tell this. The George Floyd Act. We just recently got word that that's going nowhere. George Floyd was executed. He was lynched and brought up in daylight. And elected officials, especially Democrats, said, oh, you elect us. We're going to do something. Only for us to receive message a couple of weeks ago that it is stalled. After all these black people voted for Democrats. We had the For the People Act and the John Lewis Act. Uh, folks may not know, Congressman John Lewis recently died. He was a civil rights leader on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He got hit over the head. He was an icon. He recently passed away. So in tribute to his life, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So the For the People Act was dealing with voting. That act was dealing with voting. Guess what? It ain't moved. And black people... Democrats do have a working class coalition, but other ethnic racial groups, they go date the other side every now and then, the Republicans. They go date. Mm. There's only one group that votes for Democrats wholesale, come hell or high water, as we say in the black community, and that's the African-American community, by over 90%. And you mean to tell me we can't pass the George Floyd Policing Act? Y'all can't pass the For the People Act or the John Lewis Law? Something is wrong, Grace. So we got to address it. Truth and reconciliation first. And then I believe that black American descendants of slaves deserve reparations in all of its forms. And that includes cash payments. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned from your campaign, from the Bernie campaign? And what advice would you give to progressives fighting their own battles all over the world? I would say some of the biggest lessons from both campaigns that uh, the other side will do any and everything necessary to try to thwart and snuff out the hope of this movement by trying to kill off its leaders. That big money is a big deal. And that when those forces unite against progressives, it can do a lot of damage. Mm. That as progressives, we have to unite and be more disciplined and agile in our movement. And that on the positive side, what we are doing is shaking up the world and will shape the world. We just can never give up. You know, as I said in my speech last night, you know, taking a page from uh, one of the greatest women to ever live, Harriet Tubman. And she said, you know, when you hear the dogs keep going, there's torches in the woods. Keep going. If there are people running after you, keep going. If you want a taste of freedom, you know, keep going. That is the, that's a liberation message. Mm. That no matter what we are up against, we must keep going. I love that because it reminds me of a quote from one of my personal heroes, a Christian socialist from here in the US, from here in the UK, sorry, Tony Benn, leader of the movement, who said, there is no final victory just as there's no final defeat, just the same battle to be fought over and over again. So toughen up, bloody toughen up. Bloody t- toughen <laughs> up, baby. Amen to that. Every generation is going to have a battle to fight to advance justice for the next and the next and the next. One last question. What's next for you? You going to run again? We will see. I, I all, all cards are on the table. Every option is on the table. I'm seriously thinking about that. Um, I, I will say that whatever I do, 
I'm going to always be about the business of liberation, whether I run again or not, forever in the liberation struggle. Tina Turner, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Grace. It was my pleasure.